This is the Southwest Christian Duffian Bible School, the 13th of July, 1998. Our third period speaker is Brother John Martin in class one. His subject is, Let Him That Thinketh He Stand. Today's title is, I Have Much People in This City. Brother John. Well, good morning, my dearly beloved brothers and sisters and our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, we're going to be dealing with Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10. And you might say, well, that'll be a bit disjointed. No, it won't be disjointed. You see, because the 1st Corinthians is divided into separate subjects. Paul wrote this letter. There were problems in that ecclesia, and he gave certain sections to each problem. So you have, for example, chapters 1 to 4, the problem of party factions. He deals with that in those first four chapters. 5, 6, and 7, he deals with the relationships between men and women, the questions of marriage, and so forth. And then from 8, 9, and 10, now concerning those things which are offered unto idols, the meat which was offered unto idols, and that's the one we'll be considering, brethren and sisters. Of course, going on from there, uh, you've got in chapter 11, there's a special chapter on the memorial feast. Chapters 12, 13, and 14, he deals with spiritual gifts. There's a magnificent chapter on resurrection in 15, and then, of course, his final salutation and farewell in chapter 16. That's Corinthians. So it's divided up. So the fact we're going to speak about six, the chapters 8, 9, and 10 doesn't mean it'll be disjointed. It'll be very much in context. And what we want to do in this first session, brothers and sisters, is to tell you about Corinth and the background of the Corinthian Ecclesia that we might better appreciate the sort of people to whom Paul was writing. And I'm very sorry that I left all my transparencies home. That's what's happened when you get to my age. You, you, you can't remember anything. And I got them ready and left them all home. So I'm sorry about that because I wanted to show you a map where Corinth was uh, that you might appreciate uh, the, the, the feelings of the apostle when he got there. But if you can just use your imaginations, you've got Greece, you see, here. There's a, Greece is there, and then there's a little strip of land. It's only about four or five mile wide, uh, which then joins the, the, that, the, 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 the uh, continent of Europe, as it is, to the Peloponnesian Peninsula, which is beneath it, which is part of Greece. And you see that on a map. You see Greece coming down this little bit of land, and then you see this peninsula underneath it. And Corinth, brothers and sisters was just west of that little strip of land, and it was 45 miles to the east was Athens. And Paul had been sent away from Thessalonica because he was in grave danger of losing his life. He'd left Silas and Timothy there, and he'd come down to Corinth, or rather to Athens, and there, of course, he gave that famous speech on Mars Hill. And from there he came, of course, to Corinth itself. Now, brothers and sisters, you would not get a greater contrast between the cities of Corinth here on the west and Athens on the east. Only 45 miles divides the two of them. As a matter of fact, on a clear day, if you stood on the Acro Corinthus, that's the hill of Corinth, you could look across to the east and you could see actually the Parthenon and the Temple of Athena way up there glowing in the sun. You could actually see that in that distance on a clear day. And so those two cities were in proximity. But they were only in proximity geographically. They were poles apart. 
as far as the psychology of the people was concerned and as far as the whole society was concerned. Athens was the great university city of the Roman Empire. Uh, that's where it was all centred uh, as far as the Romans were concerned. There over in Athens uh, were all the professors and there's where the, the, the youth went to the universities to learn the vocations of life. And Paul stood, brothers and sisters, on Mars Hill, halfway up uh, the, uh, the uh, Acropolis there. Up at the top was the Temple of Athena, which today has been excavated and you can see there still standing part of that great temple worshipping uh, the God of wisdom and love. And Paul stood on this little bit of ground about the size, twice the size perhaps of this platform, Mars Hill. And it was our privilege to stand there. You, you don't have to be feet from where he was. And there he stood and down below him was the Agora and the university spread around him. And up there stretching to his right he could see this great temple there he sat, or stood rather, while sitting around him were all the professors of the university and he said, the times of this ignorance God winked at. The times of this ignorance. And ignorance indeed had gripped that great city, brothers and sisters. They were ignorant of all that really mattered. But brilliant they were in the things of this world which come to naught. And because Paul was among that sort, he felt on that occasion that he ought to wax eloquent, you see. And so he tried, as it were, to mix the message with eloquence. And he even quoted their own prophets in order to make an impression upon them. Well, they only had a few baptisms. I mean, if we had, if that, if we had that sort of success today, we'd think it was magnificent. We'd turn a somersault. But to Paul, that was rather a disappointment. And so when he came to this city of Corinth, he came to a different, different class of people. And he knew, brothers and sisters, the problem they would have. Now let's have a look at Corinth. So we move west, that 45 mile. Now that little bit of land today, the four or five mile strip, they have cut a canal through there today. It's an it's a amazing thing to see this. A, a canal, I suppose, about the width of this hall, and the, the big ships go through it, the cliff's about 50 to 100 feet high and just straight through that piece of land. So they've joined the Aegean Sea to the Adriatic and of course it's a shortcut then across to Rome. But in the days of the Apostle uh, they used to drag their boats across that strip of land in order to save the journey around the bottom of the, of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. So shortening the journey uh, to Rome. And when you got to Corinth, brothers and sisters, what a difference you had. Here was a busy seaport. Here consented all those trade routes leading straight on across that strip of land onto Rome. And being that sort of place, it had a cosmopolitan society. Every conceivable nation was represented there and every conceivable type of person. And Corinth was noted, brothers and sisters, as a city that was vice-ridden and sport-crazy. About like Australia absolutely like Australia, vice-ridden and sport-crazy. Every second year they had the Isthmian Games, because, called that because of the Isthmus, that little strip of land, and they had the Isthmian Games every second year there. And they've even excavated part of that now, brothers and sisters, and you can visualise the stadium that was there and the stands they had and the Olympic Games which were run there. And the other thing, of course, uh, the vice for which it was noted 
uh, preeminent among that, brothers and sisters, was sexual depravity. Sexual depravity. And we'll talk a bit about that later when we get to chapter 10 with the great temple on top of the Acro Corinthus, the, the hill of Corinth right behind. And I'll, when we have our evening tomorrow night, God, God willing, we will show you slides of the land and the Bible references in relation to that. And I'll show you that we've, that where we've been there and seen this remarkable place. And you will see, brothers and sisters, how, how wonderfully it brings this record alive to you because... The Corinth lay right underneath this great hill which towered above it a couple of thousand feet. And up there, up there, that restaurant which was served by the thousand priestesses worshipping the goddess of the Aphrodite, sexual depravity. And the Corinthians, brothers and sisters, were dragged up out of the mud of society. And Paul knew, as he later on wrote to them, that people who come to the truth, brothers and sisters, like that, and, and who come into, into the possession of some intellectualism, as the truth is intellectual, if we're not careful, people like that come almost to worship intellectualism in its own right. And Paul, knowing that, because we, we know that he knew that, because when he wrote the first epistle, he, he makes mention of this, and it be, did become a problem in Corinth. He determined, brothers and sisters, when he came there, he would not do another Athens. Now, in the first Corinthians chapter 2, we have his statement in that regard. He didn't want to come like he came to Athens. In the first Corinthians chapter 2, he says this. In verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with the excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And he knew, brothers and sisters, that if he was to transport uh, that speech from Athens here, uh, it would have uh, a wrong effect upon these people. And, and they would become to worship eloquence and intelligence in its own right, which they did in the case of Apollos. And so he says, listen, I know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now that didn't mean that all he spoke about was the atonement, because he didn't. It wasn't subject matter he's talking about, but attitude of mind. And Jesus Christ and him crucified, brothers and sisters, is the flesh displayed for what it is. Weak, fear and trembling. And our Lord, brothers and sisters, was reduced to tears of much crying. He prayed unto his God who delivered him out of death. And he crucified this body. And he was the most wonderful man that ever lived. The most brilliantly intellectual that the world has ever seen uh, coming from God as he did. And that's what he thought of the flesh. And Paul said, oh, that's the dominating factor when I'm coming to you. And I'm not there to present myself. He says, I'm not going to, to, to display my eloquence and power of speech, he said, I'm going to demonstrate to you what really is powerful. And he did that, brothers and sisters, among them. Now, in the 18th chapter of Acts, we have the background to the establishment of that ecclesia. 
when Paul came there, he would think to himself, well, the quicker I get out of this place, the better. He could hardly conceive, brothers and sisters, that, that God would have any people in this city. And so we read in the 18th chapter of Acts and, and verses 9 and 10, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. Now, brothers and sisters, the appearances of the Lord to Paul in his lifetime were rare. They were very rare. And they only happened when occasion called for it, when matters had reached a climatic point, when it was needed, and Paul would be in that city and he would see it. You know, a, a bubbling cauldron of, of vice and madness and, and people coming and going. And he, he, he would think, who on earth would ever believe the gospel in this city? And because the Lord would know that the Paul was in a deep state of depression, he appeals to him, Paul, he said, I've got a lot of people here. What an astonishing comment that would have been to the apostle. So much so that he spent six months there, we read in this record. He spent six months there, and the record says he, he sat there, quoting the Greek. He dwelt, it says, six months, but the Greek says he sat there for six months, almost making it like his headquarters. And God gave him help, brothers and sisters, because we read in verse 1 that after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth, and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and he came unto them. Now here's a remarkable set of circumstances. Claudius had got, told the Jews, get out of Rome, what for? We don't know, but archaeologists tells us that records have been turned up from Claudius, stating that there was some sort of an insurrection about one called Crestus, Crestus, uh, which they say could have been uh, a, uh, a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps it was that Aquila and Priscilla had been ejected from Rome because of their belief in that. They're Jews. And these are a remarkable couple in the Bible. Uh, Aquila, whose name means an eagle, and Priscilla, whose name means a little old woman. And you know, brothers and sisters, they were a remarkable couple. You find them here, you find them in Rome, you find them in Ephesus, and you find them in Paul's final letter that he ever wrote before he was executed and telling Timothy to stick with them because they were a good couple in the truth. Do you know they're mentioned six times in Paul's writings? And, and in the authorised version, you, you'll notice that, that, that Aquila is mentioned three times and Priscilla is mentioned three times first. He's mentioned three times first and she's mentioned three times first. Now, brethren and sisters, it's extraordinary that she's mentioned at all. I mean, Peter's wife accompanying him, we, we learn from the 1st Corinthians 9, and the other apostles, their wives accompanied them on their journeys. We don't even know their name. But we know her name. And not only that, we find her mentioned three times out of the six. That's in the authorised version. But in the Greek text, in this chapter, in verse 26, where she appears second, she should appear first. So she's four times mentioned in front out of the six times that they're mentioned. Why that she's mentioned at all is astonishing. 
And in this context, when they came across this Apollos, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, and it was Priscilla and Aquila that took him aside and taught him the way of God more perfectly. More perfectly. A man that was skilled in the baptism of John, who had come from the seat of learning in Alexandria with 775,000 volumes of books, a man who is a brilliant orator and a wonderful debater, and Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and taught him the way of God more perfectly. And it would appear, brothers and sisters, to me that this woman perhaps was the sharper minder of the two. Aquila was obviously a wonderful man and a faithful man, but it would appear that this woman had come to a, a, a keener perception of the things of God. And here is a combination of, of, of a married couple that were immensely helpful in the truth. And we know, brothers and sisters, don't we, that it is, it is the rule of God. It, 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 is, it is right, it is, it, is, it is proper that the husband should take the leadership in the house because God, God, is a father, not a mother. He's a father, and his son is a boy. He's a son. And so it's proper that that should be maintained in the house. It doesn't mean that the women are second-grade citizens by any means. It means they are complementary, brothers and sisters, to what goes on in that house. But there are exceptions to that rule. And when that happens, if it happens in your home, sisters, uh, then you have a right, of course, and it's proper uh, that you should assist your husband if he, if he cannot see the things clearly as you do. But do it discreetly. And do it with love and with due consideration of the feelings of that man who has a God-given right to be seen as the leader of his house. And I've got no doubt in my mind at all that Aquila and Priscilla uh, got through life marvelously because she would have been a very, very, a very a, a wonderful person who would have been keenly sensitive to her husband's feelings. But nonetheless, there she is. Now it says they worked together, they wrought together. And, and you know, that was good for the Corinthians because in the first Corinthians chapter 4 uh, of brethren and sisters, or shall we say 2 Corinthians, that might be a better reference. In the 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle wrote to them, wrote to the Corinthians like this. And I'll tell you the reason why he had to write this. In the 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 9, he said, but we have this treasure, <coughs> that's not the one I'm looking for, where is the one? Oh, sorry, it's the 2 Corinthians 11, 7 to 9. He said this, have I committed offence in abasing myself that ye might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? I robbed other ecclesias, taking wages of them to do you service. And when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. And so he wrought with these two in their occupation as tent makers in order to be free from the Corinthians. Why would he do that? Because of the very reason, brothers and sisters, I mentioned earlier, that when you get people that are dragged up from the dregs of humanity and had nothing and knew nothing, and suddenly they're in the truth, which has, which has for its base intellectualism of the finest sort, because we've all got to learn something, and then, of course, it produces men and women who are outstanding examples. And if we're not careful, 
we could become to worship both the intellectualism and the person personalities that presented. And that's what happened to the Corinthians. So when the Judaizer came along with his high-sounding phrases and his self-praise of his brilliance in the law of Moses and his lofty approach and looking down upon them in a demeaning way, they gloried in that. And when he asked for expenses, why, they said, that was, of course, in due regard for his dignity. And when Paul came and worked with his own hands and refused their expenses, they were offended because they felt that was below his dignity and he ought to realise uh, what position that he had. And that's exactly the reason why Paul did work with his own hands because he didn't hold that view, brothers and sisters. It's odd, isn't it, how people think like that? But they do, you know. Most people are glad when you say you don't want your expenses, but the Corinthians were offended because they felt that was beneath uh, the apostle's dignity and he ought not to do that. Now Luke is a brilliant historian. That's what he is, he's a historian. We need to know that. You see, he's not one of those apostles who, who wrote from the Bible expounding it, as Paul would. It's, a, it's written here and it means that. And he would stretch that out, uh, th those lessons. Uh, it would be wonderful to see him do that. But Luke's not like that. He's writing a history to this Roman dignitary called Theophilus. So he told him in, in, Acts, in, the, rather in the Gospel of Luke that there's the story about Jesus. Uh, the, he said in order the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, he, he said to this, uh, this Theophilus, he says... Here's the Acts of the Apostles of all that Jesus began, began to do and to teach. So Acts is an extension of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the history of Acts can be pinpointed with relative accuracy to be a period, brothers and sisters, of 33 years. So here is an extension of the work of the Lord. But knowing him to be an historian, what we've got to watch is this that Luke doesn't stop to expound the Old Testament, but he drops in a word, a sentence, in a couple of places, two places I know, a number, in which he's telling you to have a look at the Old Testament, and back there you'll see a comparable history out of which this is growing, to which this is related. And we've got one of those gems here. Because he said these people were tent makers. Why bother to tell us that? Later on, oh, we won't come to this, but if we were doing the Acts of the Apostles, I could tell you why he said that Paul was taken to a street called Straight. And that's out of the Old Testament too. And that's the only street named in the Bible by this historian. Because he wants to, to, us to see that there's something going on here. Now, if you turn to Isaiah 49, brothers and sisters, you'll see a remarkable thing. And if we had the time to develop this, I could show you that Paul's work personally, individually, is set out in the, in the book of Isaiah. It's all here. Paul didn't know it at the time. But when he was converted by the Lord, the Lord drew his attention to this prophecy and Paul is in here, personally and individually. And he was astonished to see that. That's why he was to write to the Romans and said, I magnify my office. He was a subject of Bible prophecy, personally and individually. And that was revealed to him when he was arrested by the Lord on the way to Damascus. But you see, Paul being in here, so is a lot of Paul's works in here. Chapter 49 of Isaiah. 
is about a woman. Uh, she's called Zion. She, she represents the children of Israel. Uh, and she's lost her family. And, and she comes crying to God as if God doesn't care that her family's gone off into captivity, is roaming around the world. God says, I do care. Uh, and he said to this woman, he'd, he'd give her another family. And we pick it up at verse 20. The children which thou shalt have after you have lost the other shall say again in thine ears, the place is too narrow, too small for me. Give place to me that I may dwell. Then shalt thou say in thine heart, who hath begotten me these, seeing I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and removing to and fro? Who hath brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. These, where have they come from, she says. And so she has this large family that's coming to her and say, Mother, the place is not big enough. You better make it bigger. And she's got more children than what she lost. And she said, I don't even know their father. The reason she didn't know that, because when Paul uses this in Galatians, he said, they're all the children of God by faith. And she thought they were by law. But they were not. And where have they come from? Verse 22. Thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the Gentiles. And so here comes the Gentiles. And when we turn the page to chapter 54, we find that one of the figures that Isaiah uses for the calling of these Gentiles, who will suddenly be a big influx of them, increasing the family of God enormously over a short period of time. We read in Isaiah 54, Sing, O barren, thou didst did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more of the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith Yahweh. Now look at that. Here's a woman who never went through the pains of childbirth. A woman who couldn't have children. And all of a sudden, she's got a large family. And what's she going to do? Enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains. Brothers and sisters, the figure of the inclusion of the Gentiles in Isaiah's prophecy, increasing the family, is enlarging tents. And it's only said of Aquila and Priscilla and the Apostle that they were tent makers. And not only that, but, the, but Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned of having lived in Rome and the apostle commends them, brothers and sisters. He talks about in Corinthians, they were in, in Corinth, he said, uh, they had the ecclesia in their house. And, and when they were in, in Rome, he said they provided shelter, he said, for the brothers and sisters, he said, and to whom I, not only I give thanks, but all the ecclesias of the Gentiles. And so in Rome... There was a notoriety about the home of Aquila and Priscilla that if you wanted shelter, you'd go there. Imagine, brothers and sisters, what would have been necessary for them to do that. And especially that applied to Gentiles. And he were Jews protecting Gentiles, not only from the authorities of the day, because they were now in Christ, but from the bitterness and hatred and envy of their own people. But they were tent makers. And they would be constantly providing. They probably didn't live in a tent then, but they, in, their, in their dwelling they would be constantly providing new rooms, new beds, getting more linen, preparing for more visitors, tent makers. And that's the figure that Isaiah used of this wonderful way in which the gospel would spread and how the Gentiles would be included. Now you know the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, 
and it was the Japheth, of course, that uh, the, the people of Europe and of Asia, the Eastern and the Western worlds were developed from Japheth, weren't they? And, and Japheth is, is, a, is a name which means to enlarge. But more than that, the connotation of the Hebrew word is this, that Japheth means to enlarge by persuasion. To enlarge by persuasion. Got that? Enlarge by persuading people. The record says in Genesis 9, where the origin of this thought was, that Japheth shall dwell in the tents of Shem. And God would enlarge them. Well, if you're going to enlarge your people, you don't put them in other people's tents, do you? You say, buy bigger ones yourself. But no, Japheth shall be enlarged by persuasion and dwell in the tents of Shem. And from Shem, of course, came the Semitic people, the Jewish people. And right back there in Genesis, the germ of that idea, that figure was there, spread through Isaiah's prophecy, and Luke tells us of all people that they were tent makers. And so, brothers and sisters, here the scene was set then in Acts 18 for, for these Gentiles to come into the truth and for room to be provided by the preaching of Paul and by Aquila and Priscilla. Now, verse 5 of Acts 18 says this, or verse 4, that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Of course, you start in the synagogue because it's the Jew first and then to the Greek. But not only that, brothers and sisters, you see... It'd be the best place in the world to start because here are people that have the basics of the Old Testament firmly fixed in their mind. You've you got a head start in that synagogue. Not only that, but there would be mixtures in that synagogue of the proselytes, the, Jew, the Gentile proselytes. A proselyte is a word which means to come near, to come near, and was used by the Jews of those Gentiles who had joined themselves to the hope of Israel. There were two classes, proselytes of righteousness and proselytes of the gate. Those of righteousness were those who had not only accepted the covenants of promise, but had been circumcised and accepted the law. Whereas those of the proselytes of the gate, who were left just outside, were those who accepted the law and the promises, but would not be circumcised. But they were proselytes, and they would be in that synagogue. So Paul had an excellent starting point. But it quickly demoralized him, brothers and sisters, because... You got a lot of opposition in that synagogue. And I can understand when this record speaks as it does in the next few verses what happened here. He's in this vice-ridden, sport-crazy city. The, he, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He hasn't yet been told by the Lord. They've got much people in the city. He goes to the synagogue and he, he runs into a brick wall. And they will not listen to him. He, he finishes up getting out of there. And so Paul's at an all-time low and we get to verse 5. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Ah, oh, look, if you've never had that experience, uh, brothers and sisters, look, it's a thrilling thing. You know what happens in life? We are gregarious people, most of us, because we're Christadelphians. We love company. We love to be encouraged by others. People say, John, you know, you encourage people. Yes, I do. But I tell you, brothers and sisters, if I didn't get encouragement, you'd get none from me. I desperately need the company of my brothers and sisters. I could never, ever live in isolation. 
I would drift from the truth. There's no question of that. I need people to tell me and to enthuse me. And I can imagine the apostle, when Silas and Timotheus came down, pressed in the spirit, you know, Rutherham translates that, urged on in the word, urged on, with these two wonderful fellows who had been left at Thessalonica while he was sent away for the fear of his life. And among them, Silas, of course, and little Timothy. A little Timothy, brothers and sisters. You know, if you're an artist, with the information that you've got in the Bible, you can paint him. You know more about him, perhaps, physically and characteristically than you do the most people in the Bible. Little Timothy, who only weeks was taken from under the roof with his grandma and his mother, whose father had obviously gone off, who was a Greek, and had gone off and left the two women to bring this little fellow up. A little boy that was thin as a rake, bones sticking out, and a little pale complexion, and timid as anything, you know, shy as anything. Paul said to the Corinthians, don't you dare frighten him. That's what he was like. And, and he, he writes to Timothy about the old wives' fables, that, that there were all the old women fussing over him and saying, Timothy, you ought to do your daily dozen. Pick up the weights and do a bit of running and walking for, for, the, for your physical physique. And Paul says, you know, that doesn't profit for all time. This is the sort of thing. And he wouldn't drink nothing but water. Oh, no way would he drink anything but water. And Paul says, look, a little wine won't hurt you, Timothy. And so you, know, you get, and he's off, he's off with infirmities. Little boy had indigestion because he had a nervous disposition. You can absolutely paint him. And he was left at Thessalonica, brothers and sisters, to exhort them that they should not be moved by these things of persecution, of the threat of death, that he was stood there to exhort them not to be moved by these things. Imagine that kid. Imagine him coming. And what was the wonderful attribute that he had? Paul said, I haven't got a man in the world like him, he told the Philippians. I've got no one, one sold, to quote the Greek, one sold with me in this respect. His outstanding virtue, brothers and sisters, is that he never knew that Timothy existed. He thought nothing of himself. There was nothing of himself to think about. And he gave his whole life for other people. His own existence never entered into his mind. I have no man, one soul with me, who will naturally care for your state. For all men seek their own and not the things which belong to Jesus Christ. But he's not like that. And I can imagine that little kid coming down with Silas and now has, has gone out into this big, wide, terrible world and faced this world and left by his beloved spiritual father in the truth to fight the good fight of faith, this little timid fellow, and he arrives and Paul sees him and is urged on in that Bible by the very spirit of that boy and by Silas, brothers and sisters. It's a marvelous little picture that Luke is painting here for us of the way in which we can help each other. And being urged on the Spirit, it says in verse 6, And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. He said, Henceforth I will go to the Gentiles. So he walked out of the synagogue. Do you notice? They didn't, didn't oppose the Apostle Paul at all. They opposed themselves. You know, it, it says concerning... The Lord Jesus Christ, uh, when the Pharisees and the common people gathered to him uh, over the question of who or what John was, uh, when John sent a message 
Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And when the messengers of John had gone away, and, and there was a little smirk on the people's faces, perhaps because they said, oh, who would have thought that John the Baptist would doubt? You know, you see, oh, we're all weak, aren't we? And he swung around. Who, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken in the wind. What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment, he said. And he gave him a stinging rebuke about John. But you know, brothers and sisters, when he'd finished, the common people reduced to tears. But the Pharisees turned away. The margin says they frustrated the grace of God within themselves. John's name means the grace of God. They could see. They could see by the very way that he came, the example of singleness that he set, of separation, of dedication to no other distraction but God's word no distraction they knew the message that a voice had come crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord this is the way it's got to be done isolation from all the distractions of the world that was the message and they knew that and they frustrated the grace of God in here they opposed themselves and there are other examples of that Paul wrote to Timothy and told him to be gentle unto all men, apt to teach that those who oppose themselves, he said, might be recovered. And when Paul walked out of that synagogue, what a tragedy it was that these people had brought down upon their own head their own condemnation when every opportunity was given them to succeed in life, brothers and sisters. We don't give up when we are exasperated. If we have to give up, brothers and sisters, it's because other people won't respond. And so Paul came out of that place and he went next door in verse 7. It says he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice. It says one that worshipped God. Now that is an expression used of Gentiles. See, all the Jews purported to worship God because they were Jews. But when a Gentile was a proselyte, it says he was a worshipper of God. So this man, Justice, was not a Jew, but he lived next door to the synagogue right next door and Paul goes in there into that man's place and what happens verse 8 and Crispus the chief ruler of the synagogue believed and so from the, the next door neighbor's place he converts the ruler of the synagogue now in the first Corinthians chapter 1 Paul makes mention of him in the first Corinthians chapter 1 he makes mention of him he said look he said, I thank God that I, this is verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. So Paul took the personal trouble to baptize Crispus because it was an important convert, brothers and sisters, right next door to the synagogue. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine us going to the Vatican in Rome and, and trying to convince uh, the Pope and all his followers concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of that and we'd be thrown out and we'd go right next door to the Vatican. Well, you wouldn't imagine the Pope had come to the truth, would you? But what if one of his chief cardinals did? And here's Crispus, the ruler of that synagogue. He's in the truth. And what happened then? Oh, it says in verse 8, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. It become a tremendous impetus, brothers and sisters, for, for them to accept the truth, you see, and, and come, of course, to, to be baptized. This is what happened there. Now, Paul says in, or Luke says in, in verse 11, 
that he was there about a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And, and the margin says, he, for the word continued, it says he, he sat there. He sat there for that 18-month period of making it his headquarters throughout Achaia. Well, of course, the Jews can't stand that. So in verse 12, when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him under the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, brothers and sisters, have you ever noticed that in the Acts of the Apostles, when Paul defended himself against these Roman governors, you ever notice there's one common factor in all of them? You see, this was the point. He was the point. The Jews wanted to put a stop to this. They couldn't do it in their own right. Uh, they, 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 could, they could incite the people to riot and rebellion, but in the end, the Roman governors would quell the riot, and in most cases, the Jews themselves would suffer because of it, and people would lose their lives because they, they were the ones that had instigated the riots. So they, they were limited to what they could do about this crazy Paul uh, who was, to their opinion, apostate from the truth. So they dragged him before the Roman governors, Gallio, Felix, Festus, Agrippa. And Paul said the same thing in front of all of them. It's a common factor in all his speeches. And it was this, that the Romans, you see, would put their Roman stamp and seal of authority upon anybody's religion. So you took it to Rome and you got it approved as an approved religion. And when the Romans approved you to preach your religion, you could do that freely in the Roman Empire, and you did it under the protection of the Romans. Judaism, which is a term meaning the Jews' religion, was an authorized religion in Rome. The Jews were free to have their synagogues everywhere. Not only free to do it, but the Romans were bound to protect them, brothers and sisters, while they preached Judaism. And there's Gallio and there's Felix, and there's Festus, and there's Agrippa, and they're dragging Paul up all the time, and they get the same answer. As these Roman governors say, answer for yourself, he says, I practice the Jewish religion. There's only one difference. I know it better. I quote their Bible. After the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers. See, what could they do? Imagine the Jews tearing their hair out. And the Romans, unable to discern which was the best of the two, could do nothing about it. Because Paul was exactly right. His was the Jews' religion. For the hope of Israel, I'm bound with this chain. It just so happened he knew it better. It wasn't a new religion at all. And so his defense before Gallio would run along those lines, brothers and sisters. Of course, there was a riot, wasn't there? And Gallio had to put that riot down. And in the end of the, in verse 17, we read, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue. Hey, he'd have been the next one to take over from Crispus. And now he's in trouble. And the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue. Now, it doesn't say here on whose side he was. But you look how Corinthians opens, brothers and sisters. The opening verse of Corinthians is this. You listen. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Now the word our is in italics, so it's not a part of the original Greek. But what is not there, which is part of the original Greek, is the definite article. And he really said, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, the brother, the 
brother. And he stood, brothers and sisters, as a monumental victory for the truth. Because when Crispus would have come over uh, to defect from the, from the Jewish synagogue and to become uh, a member of the Christian faith, brothers and sisters, you can be absolutely certain that when they, they appointed the next ruler of the synagogue, they would get a radical Judaizer, a radical man. They didn't want this to happen again, and it did. It did. And he became known as Sosthenes, the brother. And so there we have, brothers and sisters, basically the establishment of the Corinthian ecclesia. Well, Paul sailed off, didn't he, to get back to, to the land of Israel. And Priscilla and Aquila left with him, and he came to Ephesus. He stayed there for a while, and then he left Priscilla and Aquila at Ephesus. And verse 24 says that while Priscilla and Aquila were at Ephesus, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. Born in Alexandria. Well, Ptolemy Philadelphus, brothers and sisters, was the Ptolemy in Egypt, one of those Grecian rulers, uh, descended, uh, not rather descended, but one being the descended from the Roman ge general of Alexander the Great. He had got the section in Egypt. And of course, Ptolemy Philadelphus was a great learned man and he, he, he loved books. And he'd opened up a huge library on the, on the northern coast of Africa in Alexandria. Thousands of volumes there were with the Romans in AD 41 burnt and destroyed. But he had this huge collection of books, among which, of course, later on was the Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, which he had commissioned to be translated by Jews. And in that library, there was a big, big section of the Jewish faith because the Jews were so powerful in Alexandria that there were 50,000 of them there in, in these days and there were three whole suburbs of Alexandria were completely Jewish. So powerful were the influence of the Jews in that place that in about AD 64 to 66, there was a riot there and thousands of them were slaughtered by the Egyptians because they were so jealous because they dominated that place. And Apollos was born there. And being a very erudite man, was a regular visitor to the, to the, to the gallery, the, to the library, and a reader. And he became convinced of the faith of, the, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And he read up on it and was right up to date to the, to the days of John the Baptist. And beyond that, he didn't go much further. Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and completed his education. And what did he do? He went back to Corinth. Came back to Corinth. And he mightily, or, or as rather RSV puts it, he powerfully confuted the Jews in public. And you can see in the marketplace, can't you? And standing in and around the Corinthian areas, around by where the games were held, you can see him there, brothers and sisters, in the open spaces, in the synagogue, and the Jewish experts, all the jots and tittles of the law, firing questions at this eloquent man and brilliantly answering them, one after the other. And the Corinthians standing with open mouth, watching this. And you see, this is why Paul knew them so well. And there arose in the Corinthian ecclesia a party which says, I'm a polis. And Paul had to write to them and say, you may have 10,000 instructors in Christ. You haven't got many fathers. Because they were squaring off Paul and Apollos, the two major parties. One said, I'm a Paul. One said, I'm of Apollos. 
and the Apollos party were those who were carried away with intellectualism and eloquence in its own right. Paul said, listen, you've got 10,000 instructors in Christ. You've got not many fathers. And in the last chapter of the first Corinthians, he said to the Corinthians, you wrote to Apollos to come and visit you. But he wrote back and said, I will come when I have a more convenient season. And it's clearly obvious when you go to the second Corinthians that Paul and Apollos, who thoroughly agreed with each other, whose hearts beat in tune, had got together over that matter and Apollos had agreed not to come because it wasn't an Apollos they wanted, brothers and sisters, it was a Paul. The Corinthians badly needed a father. And they got a father in the Apostle Paul who fed them not with meat straight away, but with milk, as he told them in the First Corinthians 3. And as we go into our subject tomorrow morning and b begin to pick up the context of chapters 8, 9 and 10, we will certainly be seeing, brothers and sisters, the wise and mature counsel of a father.